Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Tonight is uh, about the Tsarist Russian blood libel, and here we deal with... uh, the Jews in the Russian Empire, which will be the largest Jewish community in the world by far. Um, hear this well. In the Tsarist Empire live most of the Jews of the world. Hear what I said? Well over, well over 50% of the total Jewish population on the planet. So what happens in Tsarist Russia is kind of important. The uh, interesting fact is that there were no Jews in Russia historically. This was a country that, uh, by, by long-standing policy, never permitted any Jews in. Uh, many stories about this. And Russia acquired the Jews when they conquered Poland in 1772 and then afterwards. And uh, ever since then, uh, Russia has been conflicted, okay? Um, the, the, the Russians uh, didn't know what to do with the very large Jewish community they acquired. And uh, ever since then, it's, it's, it's not been an easy matter. Um, they haven't decided whether they want to absorb the Jews, so to speak, uh, whether they want to assimilate them, uh, crush them, uh, change them, don't change them. And this has gone on since Catherine the Great. Okay? Um, on the one hand, if they Russianize them, the Jews will take over Russia. That's the way you always feel. They say, look, look at Lenin and Trotsky and those guys. You know, they t- took overnight. That's too dangerous. If you don't Russianize them, then you have a large foreign element in Russia. You know, it'll be a bunch of Lubavitchers. You see, that's, how they, that's how they see it. And then where will that go? Then our country will have a huge, and, and it bothers them. Because the Russians don't have like an American kind of attitude. It's, oh, you know, many flowers bloom, pluralism, multiculturalism. You go in the streets in New York, does it, does it work? You see, because yeah, it Oh, we don't have the computer yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you don't have a laptop? Oh, okay. <laughs> Guess what? Um, <laughs> I, th- I, thought we, I thought I did. All right, another one. Um, well, then you'll just follow along with me. So, um, and anyway, the problem is that the Jews are so repulsive. The uh, Russians had visceral uh, hatred and dislike uh, for the Jews and the religious level and the cultural level. So it's not a group that they admired or anything like that. And the religion is so repulsive because Russia's long-standing Greek Orthodox going many centuries and they never saw Jews and to them Jews are the ones that killed Jesus and, you know, that we don't have anything to do with them. And it's always been like a real big problem in the uh, Russian culture. That's why it's ironic that the Russian Empire acquired all the Jews of the world, the largest uh, Jewish community. So it's a booby prize. When they took over Poland, they wanted to extend their borders westward, and they did do so. And you can't blame them, because that way they're safer. Uh, I'll give you just two examples. How come Napoleon didn't win? He had to start so far to the west, by the time he came to Moscow, it was the winter. How come Hitler didn't win? 
Same reason. They, put, they pushed their borders so far to the west that by the time you get into Russia, Russia, you wasted all your troops and your, and, and your fuel. So there's a basic logic to that. Problem is, there's so many non-Russians that live there. You got your Poles, you got Ukrainians, and you know the Russians and the Ukrainians. I don't have to tell you. Read the news. And the Jews, the Jews. And so it's kind of interesting the way this thing all turned out. Um, but the way the map is, after 1772, and particularly after 1800-1815, skipping all the details, Russia acquires all of Eastern Europe. Okay? They got like 90% of Poland. That's the way the European map was finally drawn after the Congress of Vienna. And so for 100 years, from 1814 to 1914, uh, all these Jews who lived in uh, Ukraine, uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, Poland, uh, you know, Bessarabia, all these territories were part of Russia under the Tsars of Russia. Now, unlike the good old kingdom of Poland, the Russian Empire is a real centralized dictatorship, although the bureaucratic absolutist variety. So the Jews who come under Russia, it's not like under Poland where every nobleman did whatever he wanted and they, they just had a contempt for the Jews and the Jews had contempt for them. And, you know, if you live on the, on the estates, you do your own thing as long as you pay off the noblemen and you have their shtetls. And so Russia is law and order, top down. It's an autocracy. That means it's a dictatorship. But the difference between dictatorship and autocracy is it's not run in an irrational manner. It's not like Saddam Hussein or somebody can just walk down the street and shoot somebody if you feel like it. It's not a crazy situation. There is organization. There's law and order. They take these things very seriously. The only thing is, there's one guy at the top that makes all the decisions. You know, can't be impeached. <laughs> there's no Congress. There's no uh, legislature or anything like that. The czars of Russia had a Senate that they appointed. That's like their personal advisors, and they gave them a lot of work to do. But the way the country is run is what they call bureaucratic absolutism. It's run by a bunch of, of uh, officials that nobody appointed except the guys on the top, and you have to live with them. On the other hand, and this is very important for our story, on the other hand, like any set of rational rulers, they wanted a state that's kind of normal. And so I'll just give you an example. If you have an empire, uh, do you need roads? Yeah, you need roads. How do you do that? They had a Department of uh, Transportation, and they had a commissions, and they had experts and engineers, and they devised the road system. Did they have public health of, of one variety or another? They did, and they, they had commissions to organize, for example, what if there's a plague in some district? You understand what I'm saying? Russia was run as a European country, just there was no bottom-up. It was all top-down. And the Jews find themselves under these conditions, and so they're under the uh, uh, control of the bureaucrats. The czar is at the top. But, you know, the guys in the middle count very, very much. And usually, I emphasize the word usually, they're kind of rational. But when you throw in all this Russian culture stuff and the fact that the Jews are repulsive to them and that the religion is so different and, you know, they're all killers of Jesus and, you know, they'll, they'll kill babies maybe and all that. Or, or is that not true? You find that the Jews were under a situation in which they weren't in charge, but they could appeal, perhaps, to officials, maybe. Um, as I said, after 1815, Russia controls, contains the vast majority of Jews in the world, and there was conflictedness at the very highest levels of Russia between the desire to run a, a, a modern rational state versus the strong medievalist traditions of superstitious belief, medievalist tra uh, traditions which are very Russian-Russian. And this is a problem Russia basically has today. On the one hand, they'd like to be a modern country, and even I would even say something like a democratic country, sort of, 
but not really. You see? They would like to have all the advantages and live like in America, but without all the minority groups and uh, that people can impeach the president, and, you know, that Putin doesn't want that. You understand? And can you have one without the other? This is the history of Russia. Under the Soviet Union, they also tried to have a high level of living combined with a dictatorship. It didn't work, okay? Because modern experience demonstrates most of the time, most of the time, that you need a kind of a democracy and the free flow of ideas and the criticism of the government, even though it hurts, to get new ideas and creativity and technological advances of a variety that will lift more people up than elsewhere. But, uh, you know, this is something that Russia dealt with. Now, in the time of Catherine the Great, when all this started, the first uh, uh, Russian empress that we're dealing with, the Poles were suppressed, and the blood libels were discountenanced. You understand? When she came in, we were talking the other day uh, in the last uh, lecture about all these crazy blood libels that popped up in Poland, which is a Roman Catholic country where they really believe in the host desecration, where they really are focused on the myths of Eastern Europe of Jews being witches and blood libels. Uh, and there was nobody in charge in Poland anyway except the local uh, you know, government here and the local court over there. And the Catholic priests were extremely powerful and influential. If you had a couple of guys like this Zuchowski guy who's writing books that the Jews are really spawning the devil and they eat people and things like that, it gets traction, unfortunately. Um, that's one reality. All of a sudden, Russia finds itself under the czars, under Catherine the Great. There's a governor general, there are uh, generals in charge, there are officials, and she's pretty enlightened, and uh, she says, I don't want to hear in Poland about blood libel, all kinds of schools. Everybody knows that that's not true, you see? Because she's like a follower of Voltaire, and she considers herself better than that. She was ruthless, but not to believe in witchcraft, let's put it that way. Um, most importantly, in the time of Catherine the Great, in 1776, a very important thing happened, in, your, in Eastern Europe in general, and which um, affects the blood libels altogether, and based on what I told you before, you'll understand, they abolished torture. Ah, you understand? From then on, in Russia, I'm talking about Tsarist Russia, not in Soviet Russia, in Tsarist Russia, you couldn't beat somebody up. It was illegal. Isn't that interesting? You couldn't, uh, you know, put them on the rack. Uh, you couldn't do the knout and all the rest of it. And the same thing happened under her pressure in Poland, the parts of Poland that weren't taken to Russia also. So now it's going to be very interesting. How are you going to get the good old confessions that we've been dealing with in this series? When you go back to Trent, you go back to Norwich, you go back to uh, you know, France and the Holy Roman Empire in Italy, oh, you just round people up, and next thing you know, you get a confession through torture. Now you can't make torture. How's it going to, how's it, how's it going to work? Um, we'll see. Now... The first of the Russian czars was uh, Alexander I. I think he's the guy that fought Napoleon. And he had a very inconsistent Jewish policy. He was a czar of Russia from 1800 to 1825. And uh, if you want to know the type of guy he is, he bumped his father off to take over. I mean, <laughs> because the father was, but, but, but that's how it works over there. And uh, I see some people are in favor of that policy. Anyway, the, uh, uh, now if I had this slide here, maybe we'll get it later, I was going to put you... Alexander I is the one who fought Napoleon. Lubavitch helped him in the fight against Napoleon. This is famous. You understand? I'm sure many have even heard the famous tale, which is often retold, where, you know, the question, Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812, and, uh, you know, war and peace, and uh, what did the Jews do? And the Jews were a significant part of the population in the combat areas because the French marched in from the west, 
And that's where all the Jews live in Ukraine and Lithuania and Belarus and such places. And so what do you do? And Alexander was afraid that they'll help the French and, you know, which way will it go? And uh, they always say like this. One Hasidic Rebbe said, back Napoleon, because he's more liberal. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, I'm against Napoleon because he's more liberal. You understand? He says, if, if Napoleon wins, then the Jews become unfrum. If we stay under the Russians, they'll beat us up, but people will stay more from. That's a famous uh, line that he said. And the bottom line is, he did encourage, I mean, he died running away from Napoleon, by the way. The first uh, Lubavitch Rebbe, the Alta Rebbe, died fleeing the French army in the middle of 1812. And, uh, I'm just to give you an idea, and his followers and people like that spied on Napoleon on behalf of Russia, and they supplied the army with, uh, you, know, sup- uh, you know, food and things like this. So they were of material help to the Russians. I'm mentioning this, material help to the Russians. So Tsar Alexander, when he was finally winning, he said, oh, when, when this war is over, I'll make things better for the Jews. Now, uh, for a little bit of a while, that was true, okay? But it's also a fact of history that after Napoleon was finally defeated, he turned very far conservative, very far to the right. And when I say conservative in the Russian uh, context, I'm not talking about Rush Limbaugh or something like that. That's American stuff, you know? I'm talking about hard right reactionary, a very religious reactionary. And Alexander I uh, did that. And uh, on the other hand, he owed the Jews. They had demonstrated a loyalty, many of them anyway, and so he appointed what he called Jewish deputies, which means that he, they were like lobbyists, uh, wealthy Jewish contractors for the government and the army, because all these armies at the end of the day in Eastern Europe always depend on Jewish uh, guys to supply the uh, horses and the fodder and uh, sometimes even the ammunition. You know, the Prussian army, by the way, I mean, just to give you an idea what I'm talking about, the famous Prussian army was supplied with all the um, artillery and steel and, and the bullets by an Orthodox Jewish firm, the Hirsch of Halberstadt, you know, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So uh, these, were the, these were the government contracts of the 19th century. Now, um, these deputies tried their best to lobby the Russian government to the degree they were able to, to help things out. And um, some of them, three, three guys, went to uh, Golitsyn, who was uh, not exactly the prime minister, but he was the minister of the interior religious affairs, this is in, in Tsarist Russia, mind you. And they obtained from him, already in 1816, 1817, a uh, letter which says, I don't want to hear about any blood libels. It's not true. Because in the Polish territories that were ruled by Russia, and that's a huge territory, they already were starting after Napoleon's defeat. There's a missing girl over here. There's a missing boy over here. The Jews did it. And uh, just to read you an idea of what I'm talking about, Golitsyn, who was the deputy prime minister, let's put it that way, sends out a circular which says, in view of the fact that in several of the provinces acquired from Poland, cases still occur in which the Jews are falsely accused of murdering Christian children for alleged purpose of obtaining blood, his imperial majesty, taking into consideration that similar accusations have on previous numerous occasions been refuted by impartial investigations and royal charters, has graciously pleased to convey that from now on the Jews should not be charged with murdering Christian children without any evidence and purely as a result of superstitious belief that they are in need of Christian blood. So basically, that's good. You figure it's an order from top down, it's an autocracy, and the guy at top says, I don't want to hear any charges unless you mamish have evidence. You see? And we don't use torture anymore, so you really have to have evidence, evidence. And if not, then you Poles and you white Russians and you Ukrainians just shut up. You know, don't do this anymore. So that would sound like it's very good. But this is Russia. This is Russia. 
And so six years later, a very famous and terrible blood libel breaks out in Velizh, which is near Vitebsk, if some of you know where that is, in, in White Russia. And, uh, and I just want to share with you the basic details of this to give you an idea of how tangled things can be in, this, in the Russian Empire, and most of the Jews lived there, even after the, quote, unquote, enlightened, rationalistic, bureaucratic state, and even after they abolished torture, and even after the Tsar says that all this stuff is not true. This, this affair perfectly reflects the conflictedness I just referred to. In 1823 in April, the stabbed body of a three-year-old kid, Theodore, who had disappeared three days uh, before from the house of his parents, was found near the town. So anytime a kid is killed, what happened? Rumors were immediately spread throughout the town that the child had been assassinated by the Jews for Passover requirements. A drunken prostitute named Maria Tertievna testified on the day of his disappearance, she had seen the child being led away by a Jewish woman. Now, this is obviously a witness of high moral character and unimpeachable standards over here. Well, that's always the case with these things. You know, somebody had a, uh, a grudge or whatever, or maybe the local police told her to. to but think Now, you can laugh, and I get it, but let's see the consequences. The local tribunal, so what happens is the justice system starts to kick in. And they did have a justice system in Russia. Wasn't that great? But it, but it, was, a, but it was a justice system. In other words, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't still in the Middle Ages, you see? And so the local tribunal decided that all the, although the investigation had not revealed any conclusive proof against the Jews who were suspected of the murder, it was nevertheless to be assumed that they had perpetrated it out of their hatred towards the Christians. So in other words, you smell bad. The verdict was then referred to the provincial tribunal in Vitebsk. Let's take it a little bit higher. So, okay, this is good. I mean, uh, let's put it this way. The local justice at a piece sometimes is a, a town drunk. That's, that's not unknown in America either in small communities. And, you know, the local guys, you know, but take it a little bit higher to the, you know, the, 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 the province court. The verdict was then referred to the provincial tribunal, which decreed that the accused were be, to be acquitted of all suspicion. And that the witness, Tertievna, the prostitute, was to receive an ecclesiastical penalty for leading a life of, of sin and prostitution. Oh, no, no. So that's good. This is, it's a justice system. It took a little while, but, you know, charges were made. No evidence was produced. She's not an unimpeachable witness. And uh, some dism case dismissed. The tribunal also ordered a new investigation into the murder, but it, did, it didn't produce any results. In other words, you do have a, a murdered child. That doesn't mean the Jews did it, but you have a murdered child. So what happened over here? Now, I want to explain to you, aside from the general prejudice against the Jews, there's a natural tendency in every police department in the world to find somebody that did it. Nobody wants to say we have an unsolved murder. So even if you find the false person, if they get charged and convicted, then the local cops look good because, you know, the case closed. You get it? We know who did it, and we found it, and if it was really, you know, but if we found it, then it's good enough. Now, in other words, when the case hit the actual legal system, which was a modern one, the case is dismissed for lack of evidence. However, the administration, meaning the bureaucrats, the administrators, the officials, very much wanted to believe that a blood libel had happened, and they tried to get the Jews into trouble. So here you run into not the officials in the court, but the governor, the police commissioner, you know, the local uh, get administrators and things like that, and they don't like the Jews. Groups of anti-Semites in the town, who were headed by certain clergymen and supported by the chief governor of Belarus, Count Kavansky, 
continued to disturb the blood libel. So this story started in 1823, but nobody would let it go. So imagine you're a Jew in this town and you say, I thought the thing's over. No, it's not over. In the autumn of 1825, when the Tsar, Alexander, passed through the town, this prostitute submitted a complaint to him against the local authorities who had not brought the murders of her son, all of a sudden, all of a sudden the child is her son, you know, right? Uh, to justice, ignoring his, and, and the Tsar, even though he signed six years earlier that you're not allowed to believe this, he said, oh, well, let's, let's investigate. Maybe the Jews did this, you see? Which means that Alexander I was like wishy-washy. One of the governor's officials, Steichhoff, sent to Valish for the purpose. The woman was arrested, and on this occasion, she herself related that she herself had brought the, the child to the house of the Jews named Zeitlin in Berlin. So now she changes the story, making it more rich. Okay? And had been present in the synagogue when the child was put to death after under, undergoing much torture. So she's polishing the story. His blood was then poured into barrels, which were transported to Vitebsk and Lozno. Lozno is where the, where the Lubavitch Rebbe lives. Two Christian maids, who according to her words had participated in these acts, were arrested and were interrogated. So now we have czarist interrogations. They don't put you on the rack, but they give you the third degree. They lock you in a room with, you know, and deprive you of sleep. And there's, there's a lot of things you can do without actually um, pinching somebody, Correct. And, uh, you know, and, and, and that is what, what happens over here. You get, uh, let's put it this way, if you get a good uh, uh, police detective, they can really run you through. And if you have Russian detectives, they can really, really run you through. On the strength of their evidence, over 40 of the Jews of the town were arrested in August 1826, three years after the whole business started. And it was decreed that all the synagogues should be closed down in that town because the Jews had abused the tolerance shown to their religion. The investigators then began to search for proof of the actual existence of a custom among the Jews to murder Jewish children. Because they want to make a case. Well, they're the local guys, you know. There was no internet. You know, it's the, the local officials. They collected material and testimonies which had been deposited on the occasion of previous blood libels in Poland and Russia. So they're pulling out the books written in the 1600s from Zuchowski and the other guys which tell you all the secrets and the tales of the Jews which are lies, but you know, this is what they believe. They found several apostates, that is, people who had converted to Christianity, one of whom, Grzynski, brought a Hebrew manuscript before the commission of the inquiry, which, according to his words, described the ceremony that accompanied the execution of Christian children. Whoa. Okay? Now, by the way, he's showing them something in Hebrew. They can't read Hebrew. He really can't Hebrew. And he's... Now, why is all this happening? If you see, the police, the commissioners, are soliciting... Testimony. They're saying to somebody, so come in and, and, and help us out on this. At the same time, Teretievna, that's the prostitute, and the Christian maids testified that they had also participated in the murders of other Christian children. So this case was getting richer by the moment. A long bureaucratic story unfolded over 10 years. Okay? These people were in jail, the town was closed down, the Jews were grounded, the synagogue was closed, the Savior Torahs were impounded by the police. It's a long story, it'll take too long, I can't give you the whole business but I invite you to, to look it up on your own. And uh, by the time it was investigated and reinvestigated at the very highest levels of the Russian government, this ended up in St. Petersburg, like we say today, Moscow, you know. They ended up ultimately in the, in the highest investigative body, like the, what they call the Senate over there. The Senate's like the, not the United States Senate. It's the highest, um, you know, uh, administrative body in Russia. So there you have the, the wisest minds. Now, you also had some very reactionary types, but you also had some liberal types. Okay? And 
the highest minister in the government, uh, which is Admiral Mordvinov, who was a famous liberal. Do we have it? Okay. Uh, these these pretty people are famous in Russian history. Anyway, uh, his wife was British. Yes, he spent. I'll just tell you a, a crazy little factoid. Admiral Morvinov served with the British Navy against the Americans in the Revolutionary War. In other words, he, so he had a lot of shakas with the English, which means that he picked up from the English a lot of the liberalism and desire to, to introduce rational, insane reforms. And so he reads the testimony of all this stuff, and he's at the top of the Senate in Russia, and he says, I know the Jews well. This is baloney. I have estates in white Russia. I, my, me and my family have dealt with Jews for decades. I understand their love of crazy, and I wouldn't necessarily trust them in business. That's what he said. But they don't kill babies for squeezing blood. You know, this is nuts. Accordingly, in, eight, in January of 1835, the state council, that's the highest thing in Russia, ordered the release and the exoneration of the accused Jews. But it took 12 years. <laughs> All right? uh, the of the prostitute, and her colleagues were sentenced to exile in Siberia on charges of libel. Okay. However, Mordvinov's proposal to indemnify the Jews for their sufferings was rejected. See, and he said, if you have a fair justice system and you put people, lock people up for years and all the rest of it, four of the people, meanwhile, had died in jail during the 12 years, of a Russian jail, and, you know, and, and by the way, that's called a good ending. Okay? No, I, I'm serious. So I'm trying to show you that life was tough in those uh, places. Now, by that time, the Tsar Alexander I had died and was succeeded by his brother, Nicholas I, who was Tsar for 30 years, 1835-1855. Nicholas I was a super dictator and a super autocrat. He's the one that really was Kovea that set down the Russian Tsar system as you would think of it now. Very tough and brutal person. Uh, but he was law and order, and so you have to follow the procedures. As I told you before, he hated to... All the czars, Nicholas, his son, his grandson, great-grandson, just had, a, just had a strong, very personal, visceral hatred of this particular population. They just didn't like Jews, which is a very dangerous um, state of mind for somebody ruling a country because if you're a nobody, you can have all the prejudices you want. But if you're actually running a business, it's dangerous. You get it? Uh, you want to be just a regular, I don't know, you know, person that has a small whatever. You have whatever prejudice you want. Suppose you run a big company. What are you going to say like this? I don't hire black people. I don't hire yellow people. I don't hire Jews. What if, what if they're good? Your, your competition will get them. And you'll suffer. So what if you're running a country? You say, I don't like Jews. Well, what, what, what if the Jews will help you? <laughs> right? What if, what if it's counterproductive? It's not economically very smart. But nevertheless, Nicholas I was like this. They used to call him the Russian Haman. Like Haman. And he's the one who drafted the kids for 30 years. 25 years in the Russian army, the little kids that they took, you've heard the stories. So he was a very tough individual. And his own justice system, uh, he becomes czar in the middle of this, has now gone through the motions and found out that there's no evidence that these Jews actually committed the murder. And he read all the files, because we have it in his handwriting. And he left a, a and, and his attitude is very typical of the Russian autocracy, which is, all right, damn it, we don't have evidence, you know. <laughs> but I'm sure they did it. But you got to let them go. I'll read you the words. While sharing the view of the Council of State that in this case, owing to the vagueness of the legal deductions, no other decision than the one embodied confirmed by me could have been reached. Notice I have to say that Admiral Morvino is right 
and the evidence is not there, and the person, the lady who was testifying is not reliable, and so on and so forth. I deem it, however, necessary to add that I do not have and cannot have the inner conviction that the murder has not been committed by the Jews. See? I know they did it, but got to let them off. O.J. Simpson, as I call it, right? (laughs) Numerous examples of similar murders go to show that among the Jews there exist probably fanatics or sectarians who consider Christian blood necessary for their rituals. So now we start to see the 19th century modification. I didn't say all Jews do this sort of thing. Rothschild, Montefiore, Einstein, oh, they're different. They're, you know, uh, uh, educated and civilized. But some Jews do that. Maybe the Hasidim, they look funny. Maybe this group, you know, and they, they I'm sure in this town somebody, but but I don't have the evidence. This appears to be more possible since, unfortunately, even among us Christians, there sometimes exists such sects which are no long, no less horrible or incomprehensible. In other words, in Russia, we do have some nut groups of Christian variety that they do do cannibalism and uh, other kinds of murder, and they and they did. So I'm sure it must be among the Jews because it can't be possible that these deviancies exist in the Christian population and don't exist among the Jews. In a word, I do not think for the moment that this custom is common to all Jews, but I do not deny the possibility that there may be among them fanatics just as horrible as among us Christians. This is what he himself annotated the memorandum that, uh, that the Council of State issued. I'm showing you this to show you mentalities over here are extremely important. Let's move ahead. I'll show you where we are. That's Russia. That's that was a hero, by the way. And there's well, yeah, that was Admiral uh, Mordvinov who who actually did the right thing and got him off, okay. And um, and then the next one is is the guy we're talking about, the Tsar Nikolai the first, okay. So it's very <laughs> hard to do so. You know, how, how do you deal with this? The Jewish scholars could only fight back with the only weapon that they had, which is words. Okay, they have no army, they have no power. Russia, there's no parliament, there's no Jewish politicians, there's no, it's, think of this, there are no Gentile politicians, there are no politicians. The goal of the Soviets, the, of the Tsar system is there's no politics. There's just the administration. And your job is to follow orders. And if you have some kind of special knowledge, they'll call you one time when they need you. You understand? You know, if, if a guy has a, uh, you know, a specialist in, uh, I don't know, gynecology or something like that, the government will call you in this. Until then, Stay out of politics, do your job, live your life, and, 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 and don't interfere. This is, this is the system over there. So the Jewish scholars began to fight back because this is a Claudius Roll business. When you say this Jew murdered somebody or then murdered somebody, there's one thing when you have a, um, a what you call a frame-up. You get it? Uh, there's one kind of tragedy that uh, there's a Jewish guy, he didn't do anything, or a Jewish lady, she didn't do anything, and because they're Jewish, they're framed, and they're uh, you know, indicted and, and hanged, uh, that's bad. But when you say it's part of the Jewish ritual that did it because all Jews or some Jews do this as part of the religion, that makes it even more of a Klal Yisrael type of matter. And uh, some of the leading Jewish uh, scholars and intellectuals try to get into this. Not the rabbis, but uh, uh, let's go to the next one. This is the leading Moscow from the beginning of Haskalah in Russia. It's a Bear Levinson. This is the person who wanted to modernize Jewish life. It's, uh, nothing changes. We just go in cycles. He's in favor of drafting the yeshiva boys, making them go to college. You know, the beginning of it's the same thing that you find in Israel today. The uh, uh, introduction of the Haskalah, as they call it, the, the European Enlightenment, 
in a Hebrew tone. And he wrote all kinds of books uh, in Hebrew trying to spread the uh, doctrine to all the yeshiva guys because he's writing Hebrew. He said uh, that, you know, Limudichol is a good thing and you know, he brings all the sources from Maimonides and the others. But among his books, he wrote a book called Ephes Domin. And Ephes Domin means there's no blood. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's in the form of a uh, dialogue between a Greek Orthodox priest, a Russian Orthodox priest, and, and, and a Jewish intellectual. And he's saying, how do you know there's no? And I'll show you it's not. And he, and he rehearses things that I shouldn't need to tell you, but, you know, was, was, was kind of far-fetched claims in his time, which is, the Jewish religion doesn't believe in murder, believe it or not. We don't even believe in murdering people that are not Jewish. It's actually a big sin. It's an, action, it's an actionable offense. I repeat, it's an actionable offense under Jewish law. Blood is something that we definitely have nothing to do with. When it comes to food, obviously, it's trafe, and we discountenance it, and, uh, you know, you, you salt the meat. All the classic arguments that he wrote in Hebrew, he was hoping that it would get out there in uh, Russian. The Russian government liked him because he was in Moscow, and so he hoped that because of his uh, standing in there, uh, maybe his words will penetrate. The problem is, if you're Jewish and you write this, everybody said, well, naturally you're lying. You get it? You need somebody who's not Jewish to do so. Maybe it'll get some traction. Maybe. Maybe. And it won't get traction among the right-wingers in Russia, but maybe among the middle. Uh, if you just have a Jew, even if he's not an Orthodox tribe, even if he's uh, a Moscow, all the rest of it, he's just saying it you know, because they want to cover their, their, their tracks. Um, and this introduces us to a very fascinating era in Russian Jewish history, in the age of the good Mishumonim and the bad ones. Uh, there were, in, 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 under Nicholas I and afterwards, down to 1917, if you're Jewish and you don't convert, you're not going to have a career. Okay? You can go to college, and you can uh, you know, go to law school, for example. Um, you will not be able to practice law if you don't convert. Uh, not at the regular court level. If you're a doctor, um, you will not be admitted to any hospital, and sometimes they won't even give you the MD, and if they do, you'll be confined to a very small practice in small towns and things like that. The, the, any kind of pro- real professional doors will be closed to you. Um, obviously, if you have a college education and you want to get a, some kind of a government position, and all these jobs are with the government in Russia, uh, the doors are closed to you. And this was a subtle pressure to convert. And a lot of Jews did do this in the 1800s, early 1900s. That's, that's the way it was. I'll tell you a better one. If you're Jewish, you have to live in the Pale of Settlement, which means that the Jews are confined. I'll use an American example. Suppose every, all the Jews had to live in the Northeast. You're not allowed to move south. You can't move to the Midwest. You can't move to the West or any of that kind of stuff. You have to live in, you know, five or seven states, great. You know, New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. So on the one hand, it's like this. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not Devil's Island, you know. On the other hand, I can't, it's, it's crazy. I live in America, and I can't go and visit Virginia. I can't go into Tennessee without a special pass and a permit, which is very hard to get. And I certainly can't live there, right? Can't go to Chicago. What is that? But those were the rules that the Russian Tsarist government put in from the day that they took over Poland. They said the Polish Jews have to remain in Poland, so they're now part of the Russian Empire, but they're the Polish provinces of the Russian Empire, and we don't want to be moving into Russia itself because, as I told you before, they had this visceral hatred of the Jews, and they felt it's going to contaminate the uh, pure Russia. And they want Russia to remain virgin pure and not be, uh, I mean this, and, and you know, not be uh, hurt by the presence of Jews. On the other hand, if you convert, you can move anywhere. So, it's, it's, you know, it's a pressure, it's a tempting, you know, somebody's like this. They say, I can't make a business here because everybody's competing, but if I can move to uh, central Russia or someplace like that, 
All I have to do is just convert. They don't even give you too hard of a time to convert. You can switch to Catholic, Protestant, uh, Greek Orthodox, any kind, just add a Jewish. And, and then all the doors are open. So it, 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 was a, it, it was a temptation, unfortunately. So the result is that you had a lot of Jews with education and one world converting in the 19th century. And now we connect this with the blood libel. <laughs> okay? uh, you had your good Mishimadim and you had your bad ones. What I mean by good and bad is, suppose somebody converts for whatever reason. How do they react now towards the other Jews? Some of these guys want to curry favor so they'll be the first ones to make Jewish jokes and anti-Semitic remarks and all the rest of it to show I'm really one of you. And other ones, not so many, but other ones say like this. I converted for whatever reason, but I'm not going to spit on my mother. right? I'm not going to say things about the Jewish religion that are not true. The Jews have their virtues. I made my decision, but I'm not doing... I'm, gonna tell, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to use the dump on someone else. Those were the good guys. Okay? Uh, you know, it used to be a famous... I'll just uh, There's books... They were written 100 years ago on by people in Russia. It's quite remarkable. It's a, it's a whole separate lecture by itself. You know, they had uh, secret seders in St. Petersburg, you know, in which everybody was not Jewish anymore and things like that. And it's a classic story, uh, very well known. The three guys are sitting in a bar in St. Petersburg, and they're all former Jews, and you know, they're talking about why they converted. The first guy said, I converted to get a job. Oh, I understand. The second guy said, I, I converted to get married. To a Russian girl, I understand. The third one said, I converted out of Ibertzeugum, out of c- conviction. And the other two laughed at him and said, oh, dude, go tell that to a guy. You understand? It's a, it's a, it's a famous uh, jo- joke from yesteryear, right? Because, because it's, it's dealing with the bitter reality that you had all these conversions. Now, in the, in the case of that we're dealing with the blood libel, there was a very famous person named uh, Daniel Chvolson, who was a, uh, a Jew... Uh, as you can see, he, he, he was uh, from yeshiva, you know, and, and, and from Lithuania and all the rest of it. And then in, when he was like 18 or 20 years old, he went to Germany and he got a doctorate. Um, he reinvented himself and then came back to Russia and converted and became a big macher because they were glad to get somebody with actual Jewish education who converted. And he became a, a professor at the Imperial University in St. Petersburg. One second, that's Harvard. But now, he all, in addition to that, he also was professor of Oriental Languages at the seminary, the highest seminary for the, for the, for the Russian Orthodox Church. Because they trained the highest priests. So he, he was in a big position. That's a famous joke. They said, like, why did you convert? He says, best it's designed um, a, a professor in Petersburg via Malabin and Aishashok, like you see in the picture over there. That's a very, very well-known story. You know, they asked him like this. Why did you, here's how the joke goes. He said, why did you convert? I converted out of principle, out of conviction. What was the conviction? The conviction was it's better be a professor over here than a Malabin over there. Okay? Um, now, I'll tell you something, a very, very interesting, and, and he rose to the top real fast, because he was a brilliant uh, scholar, and he published significant books in Russian, and he was, as I say before, had a high position in the, in the uh, Russian Orthodox uh, Church, uh, what do you call it, the seminary, and he dealt with what they called the High Synod, which is like the Sanhedrin of the Russian Orthodox Church, so it's very interesting. Now, when he, in his youth, you'll be surprised at this, he was best friends, he was boy friends with the famous rabbi. It's a kind of specter. See, here, here you have a novel. Two boys that when they're 12, 13, 14 years old, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're Jewish friends in, in, in Shul and in the yeshiva. And each one went on to have a very distinguished career. It's a novel. Because, and, and the title of the novel is Two Roads. One went on to have a very famous rabbinical career, and the other guy went on to have a different type of career, right? But they both are very famous, and they both rose to high positions in the, in, in, in the czarist world. 
Okay? And uh, it's very famous. Now, I'll, I'll make my point. Chavolson was quite aware when he was coming up that in Russia you have all these rumors about Jews murdering babies and similar matters, and a lot of people, Desar believes it, I just read you, Nicholas, they all really believe this sort of thing. And so he made it one of his missions, it's not the only thing he did, but one of the important things he did was to constantly write and try to demonstrate that it's not true. So the fact that he was teaching all the high priests, you know, the stars tomorrow of the, of the, uh, of the Russian Orthodox Church, very significant. You get what I'm saying? The fact that he had a high position in the University of St. Petersburg, very significant. Because he would say like this, look, I don't believe in Judaism anymore. I mean, I converted. I recognize the truth of Jesus and all the rest of it. But however, however, you know, Jews may have this issue and that issue, but they do not engage in ritual murder. And I will even go far to say like this, he says, and when they say they're liars, cheaters, stealers, and all the rest, it's also not true. He says, Maybe they have the wrong religious beliefs. I, 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 you know, he says, I myself changed. But, you know, don't believe all this anti-Semitic stuff that's coming out there. And because of um, the fact that he used his position for good, in other words, so he was a hero in the Russian Jewish masses, which is kind of unique, because usually somebody converts is held to be the black sheep of the family. And uh, the Jews were so downtrodden in Russia, if they find somebody who could prevent what I just read to you 10 minutes ago, 12 years in some Russian jail, because he put in the right word, that's, that's not a little thing to laugh at. And um, as a result, he became like a, 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 it's a hero. There are, again, hundreds of stories, some true, you know, hundreds of stories about Jews and their interaction with Chavosim. And, and he published a book called The Lie of the Blood Libel and in Russian. And he sent a copy to Rabbi Spector, Yitzhak Spector, who was the number one rabbi in the world, certainly in Russia. And it's very famous that Yitzhak Spector wrote to him, he says, nah, thank you for the book, Kilakach no Tsarta. Okay? Which in Hebrew is a double entendre. Lakachno tsarta means it is for this that you were created. So you can say like this, you know, you've, you've done a great thing over here. But on the other hand, notary is, is in Nazareth, you know, it's a Christian. It was for this reason that you became a Christian. You understand? Meaning that you're helping your people, at least, in this capacity. And the story goes, a very famous tale, the story goes, they wrote back to me, says, Right? Which, again, is a double entendre. You say it in the Yom Kippur davening, when you finish with the Alchet, you say, oh, I'm a nothing, I'm a poor sinner. Now that I'm created, it's like I'm not created, I'm full of shame and sin and all the rest of it, and accept my repentance. But it also means, now that I became a Christian, well, I'm not really a Christian, <laughs> something like that. So if the story is true or not true, it shows you there was a certain folk hero. And it's sad, but it nevertheless a reality, is a folk hero because his intervention saved Jewish lives. You can't, you can't deny that. In um, 1852, there was a big case Again, that popped up at the end of the reign of Nicholas I in Saratov, in the middle of Russia. And I'm not going to give you the details, because by now you know the details. You can tell me the story, if you've been following up. There's a kid that's missing, nobody knows what did it, they blame the local Jews, next thing you know, they, they submit to interrogation, some uh, local drunk or prostitute or somebody like that shows up, they get this, and, you know, and, 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 and the whole thing starts all over again. But by 1852, people like him were around. You already started to have the first wave of Educated and, and the 18, middle 1800s begins a significant era in Russian liberalism. Now, Russian liberalism never got off the ground, uh, more's the pity. And the czars of Russia were very anti liberal. And I'm talking about people with a college education who uh, you know, have read widely and have 
gotten past a lot of these local prejudices. And their dream, and this is sad that it didn't work. I mean, the world would be very different. Their dream was to have United States over America and Russia, or something like that, or England. Get it? They said, why do we have to be a country with slavery and backwardness and dictatorship and all this kind of stuff? Russians are not dumb. Right? He said, we're not, you know, some people in the third world. We're a European country, right? We're not less than anyone else. We have, look, uh, Tolstoy, Tchaikovsky, uh, you know, big Dostoevsky, you know, with very great uh, artists and things like this. So why do we have a third world political system? Which is a question that Russians have been asking from 1850 till today. You get it? Thought, I'm talking about thoughtful Russian liberals are a very, very interesting breed. And, you know, and, and they're noble people. And they said, why, why can't we have, you know, why does it have to be the worst guys get into power? And they, why can't we just be n- normal? And so you started to have this by the 1850s, 40s and 50s, even under the czars. And uh, middle class people, usually uh, professors and uh, doctors and educated types. And um, you, they start to say this, is there really a blood? I mean, this day and age, you really believe the business that they kill babies for squeezing blood and using Vermont? I mean, this doesn't even make any sense. I mean, this is the 19th century over here. It's not the 9th century, right? So what's going on? And um, uh, Hvolson, this guy I just mentioned to you, Professor Hvolson, he appeared in the court as, a, as an expert witness, and uh, he already had traction because he's not Jewish anymore. Now, you know how it goes. People say like this. Well, you're not Jewish anymore, but you still have it in your blood, right? So you still are, are saying it. But nevertheless, it's there. I'll just... Um, uh, it'll take too much time. I'm, I'm not going to read the, the, the whole business. Simply to say the following. The investigation went on for several years, became more and more involved, drawing into its net a constantly growing number of, of persons until finally a special judicial commission was appointed by Nicholas I for the purpose of disclosing not only the particular crime in Saratov, that was the town over there, but investigating the dogmas of the religious fanaticism of the Jews. You see? The latter task of a theoretical nature was a special commission in the Department of the Interior. And among the theologians at Hebrews who members of the commission was the baptized professor Daniel Chavolson, who was able to disprove the ritual legend. You see, the ritual murder legend. Now, again, I wish I could say that as a result it is, it's happy ending. This is Russia. The new czar um, took the attitude like they take with uh, what's Pollard, which is maybe he's innocent, maybe he's not innocent, but he's staying in jail. And the guys that were arrested and were convicted, even though it was clear after the commission, you know, thought that it's not really true, they didn't want to let it go. And these guys stayed in jail until like 1866, no, uh, uh, something like 14 years, until finally in the late 1800s, uh, late 1860s, a famous French Jew, Cremio, visited um, St. Petersburg, he was world famous, and so he said, it's an act of mercy, you know, will you let these guys go and something like that. And that's all right, it's an act of mercy. Meaning, they will never admit that there was a miscarriage of justice. But of course it was. So this is how difficult everything is. But I'm just trying to show you how important, uh, that was the czar by that time, I was in the second. This is the most liberal of the guys in the 19th century, and he insisted on the miscarriage of justice. Right? He insisted that the, that the system will not admit it made a mistake and keep these guys in jail. So that's what you get from the best of them. Imagine what you have from the worst. And which is why, if you go to the next one, why this guy was uh, no, that's not yet. Why this guy was so was so um, important and, and famous. Now, um, this means that um, the miscarriage of justice got out there. I mean, people knew that that people are in jail for no reason. Russia had a press. You couldn't criticize the czar, but under that, you could say things. Uh, the writings of Kholson, 
the neoliberalism, the stamliberalism I talked about, made thoughtful, educated Russians, or many of them, say, what kind of a country are we? If we're still pursuing like the Middle Ages, the blood libels, this is a sign of the backwardness of, of Russia, and it became a symbol of evil reaction in their minds, except that they're not the ones that had the power. Now, on the other hand, to conservative and reactionaries in Russia, the blood libel became a system, uh, excuse me, a symbol of the falseness of liberalism. You want to give, you want to say this, oh, the Jews are just like everybody else. No, they're not. He said, but what did they do? They murder babies. You see? Oh, but that's never been proven in court. Don't give me this business of never proven. That's O.J. Simpson. Really, they do it. You see? And the fact that you guys won't admit it shows that you're what's you know, blinkered liberalism, like people say today. See, you, you don't understand what the world's really about. The Jews really do it, but they always contrive to escape punishment. They get the good lawyer, they get the guy, they get this compulsion guy, they stuck him in there, whatever. The czar always sympathizes with the right, not with the left in Russia. He's with the reactionaries. Alexander II totally believed that Jews murdered the babies and all the rest of it. Now, in 1877, another famous case takes place in Kutais in Georgia. That's Russian Georgia, you know, in the Caucasus. And uh, by that time, it gets really interesting because the Russian judicial system had undergone a thorough reform by Alexander II. Not that you need to know everything about Russian history, but um, it's very, from the 1860s on, they really, the Imamish overhauled the judiciary in Russia. This is just interesting to know until the communists took over. And you had, like America, you had a fair court system. You have to have evidence and juries and everything, and no torture. It's a, one of the great reforms of Russia in the 19th century. That is going to be very important as far as the blood light was concerned. Because we actually have to bring evidence. How are you going to bring evidence that the guy did it? You, you know and I know he didn't do it. So it's going to be tricky. In spite of what I just said, the regime is very right-wing, and they're determined to prove, you know, I know the Jew did it, and, you know, maybe we don't have the evidence, but I know he did it. And uh, by this time, though, the judicial system was, was, was such that the Jews in Russia in 1877, and a war was going on between Russia and Turkey at that time, stung by religious and racial pride. You see that? This is something I said before. You could be reformed, you could be orthodox, you could be conservative, you could be a Moscow, all the rest of it. If you're Jewish and you haven't converted, the fact that they accused Jews in faraway Georgia of murdering babies because it's part of Pesach and the Jewish religion is something that sticks in the craw of any Jew with even two cents of pride. You know, what are they saying about that? Why? What are you, you understand? And so they hired two top lawyers, a Jew and a non-Jew, Kupernik and, and Alexandrov, meaning this is a small town affair, but they're bringing in New York lawyers, you understand? And it's like this. They said, we're going to treat this like a real trial. We're going to bust it, and they do. You understand? They attack the plaintiffs, and they smite them hip and thigh. Because once you have a real, honest court case, they say, okay, let's see the defendants uh, bring their lawyer, and let's do a little bit of cross-examination over here. You really saw this? When did it happen? Where were you? And, and so on and so forth. You know, has the evidence been tampered with? You get some real lawyers on this, especially if you have... Now, these two lawyers did a pro bono, which means you already had a system in which liberal, Russian liberals uh, say, this is an injustice, and this is just wrong, and this should be combated on, on the face of it. You understand? It's, it's, it's quite interesting that this happening in Russia. They make mincemeat out of the prosecution. The, the prosecution brings in a Jew... Who bring uh, a converted Jew who brings in a Hebrew book, which all but had they slaughter the uh, child. Uh, but the, one of the two lawyers, Copernic, he could read Hebrew. So they said, "What is the name of this book?" Yeridea. It's, it's, it's about how you shecht animals. You understand? 
But the judge, the, the judge in there, they can't read Hebrew, and so here's a, the so-called expert over here, and he's just blatantly lying in their face, which obviously has to be the case, because if you're having a blood libel trial, and the, and the other side is bringing an expert in Judaism who's going to testify, this part, you know he's a liar. You get it? So if there's a real judicial system, there's a chance to expose these people under cross-examination. But this was also a period of bad mushumanim, of people, bad uh, converts, like Yaakov Brafman and his famous book, Sefer HaKal, Kanish HaKal, in which he publishes excerpts from the Minsk Jewish community that you take, you know, cut and paste, it's like this, you can kill people, get, 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 uh, just give me the, uh, the scissors and I can rearrange the words. And, uh, and he published them and, and, and it was a bestseller in Russia. And uh, he wants to flatter his way into high circles and he succeeded. He became a darling of the right. If it was today, he'd been the right-wing talk shows in Russia, so to speak, you know, and, and, uh, and in the press. And, uh, oh, what did, did you, what did you say? Did you say it's not true? You know, you always lose the case when you say it's not true. I say, you did this and this. It's not so. That's eh, not a defense, right? But what could they do? Now, there is a famous uh, end that happened to this guy. Uh, but you see over here, juxtaposed, uh, let's do the next one here. No, then let's go back. It's uh, uh, Brafman versus Kvalsen because he had the good Mishuman and the, versus the bad one. Uh, the, the person you have over here is uh, Avram Harkavi, who wouldn't convert. He was also a yeshiva guy that went to, get a, that went to Germany and got a, a very good, got his doctorate over there. And he came back to Russia and they said like this, if you take the right steps, you can rise to the top. He wouldn't do it. He said, I'm a Jew, that's what I am. Now, he was very brilliant and he published a lot of things, so they had to give him something, but they wouldn't give him any job teaching university. But he was so learned that he got the job to be the librarian of the Semitic uh, department, the Oriental Studies, in the St. Petersburg University. Which means the person who should have been a big professor uh, had to be satisfied in his professional career with being the librarian. But that's Russia, and he was a, a, a Yiddish Yid, you know? No, he said, like this, I'm not interested in converting. Right? I believe in my religion. All of his life he stayed that way until he died in 1915. So he was a, a, a Jewish Jew, but he was very, a big Russian intellectual. And so this guy, Brofman, is a very famous story, who was the uh, wicked fellow. Um, he was a drunk. Surprise, surprise. And he didn't have too many friends because the non-Jews didn't like him because they traded the Jews. The Jews definitely didn't like him. And uh, so he used to hang around the university library a lot. And this guy had no choice but to try to flatter him. Because what are you going to do? You know, he doesn't want to make trouble, lose his own job. And so it was a very uncomfortable situation. Vahi Ayom is a famous story in 1867 that uh, Brofman came in in the middle of the day, roaring drunk to the library to shoot the bull with Harkavi, who's sitting there. And across the street from the University of Petersburg, was the New York Times of Russia at that time. I forget the name of the newspaper, but it was the number one liberal newspaper, very high prestige, something along the lines of the New York Times and the Washington Post. And, uh, and he was saying like this, he said, oh, you've got a lot of books over here in this library. He said, yeah, that's what a library is. You know? <laughs> and then he says, you know something? He says, who the hell is this guy, Ibit, I keep seeing all the time. He's, he publishes a lot of books. He's always quoting, you know? So he was smart. So he said like this, he said, oh, we have a lot of books in here, here you want, if you want, I can get you a book. just fill out the form, right? So he filled out, you know, the, in the old days, you have the library forms, so he said, my name is so-and-so, and I want all the books written by Ibid. <laughs> then he's like this, just give me five minutes. He went across the street, he went to the, to the editor of the New York Times, I guess, this is the big expert who's writing on the blood libel, there is a guy who knows all about Judaism, you know, you never heard of Ibid, you see? So that kind of deflated him for a while, but not to the right not to the right. 
They say, oh, you, you tricked them, but really he's telling the truth. So this is the problem when everything is poisoned by politics. So it is what it is, and I repeat, Desire Alexander believed in this stuff, and uh, his attitude went down to the bureaucracy. Now let me bring out a very important point. As a result of everything I'm saying, um, the Jewish people in, in Russia, in the Russian Empire, were under a constant siege. You get it? It's, thank God it's not like America, but it's not like most countries. They always felt the government, the administration is out to get them. And, and it was true. It is for this reason there did not develop in the Russian Empire the kind of stuff associated with Sam Sarevel Hirsch in Central Europe, in which they said the Orthodox should break away and secede from the reform, the reform should go this way, the Zionists should go there, we should have nothing to do with the others. Um, a famous principle of Sam Sarevel Hirsch is that if they're from Jews, they should have nothing to do with the, uh, with the non from certainly at the level of a Kehillah. And they should, because how can you have a Jewish community which doesn't believe in God and the Torah or all the rest of it? That's the sin of sins. You see, such a attitude could never go in Russia. Because Russia was like this. We need all Jews to help. We need all hands on deck. We'll even take Mishimadim sometimes. You know what I'm saying? We're under siege. We don't have time for this Narishkeit. You see? And so, if, they, if, if we disagree, and they, and they did agree, disagree on matters of religion and matters of uh, culture and certainly halach and all the other things like that, this. we'll fight about it among ourselves in the Jewish community. You get it? So if you're in Vilna or Warsaw or Kiev or wherever or, or, or a thousand other, really a thousand other Jewish communities, the idea was like this. All the Jews are voting for the Kehillah and we'll fight. <laughs> you know, we'll have a board meeting. And, 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 and I mean that. You see, because, because we, there can't be a thing over here that one group is not the other. We're all under attack. You get it? It's sort of like if right now, when a war is waging in Gaza, what's somebody going to start a whole thing in Israel and say, let's, let's make, make another machlekes? That's for tomorrow. Today we don't have the time for that. You see? We need, literally, to preserve our lives, we need every Jew, him and her, to contribute where they can. Right? The religious want it this way, the non-religious that way, this one. And f- find how you can how, fit into the orchestra. That was a very powerful um, cultural message throughout um, uh, Eastern Europe, which is identical with the Russian Empire, and it carried over into the, that creature of the Russian Empire called the State of Israel. Right? That's why in State of Israel, you can have, there's Yair Lapid, who's the ultra-secularist, and wants to knock down the yeshiva, there's Yisrael Eichler, who's on the bells, you know, and in the Agoda, the United Terror Judaism, and all the rest of it, and they do scream at each other, okay, you can go on the YouTube, Oh, they scream at each other, and this and that and the other, and you can cuss the other out. But, but not really. In other words, but if you're in Israel, it's, a, it's the Arabs who want to kill both of us. Right? We, we, we're not going to set up two Knessets. Right? We're not going to set up two countries. We can't do that. Right? I'm hoping tomorrow you'll see the light and be like me. You know, that's, a, that's how everybody does. Let's get Jewish unity. Everybody should be like me. But, but, but meanwhile, but meanwhile, meanwhile, we, we, we have to, to, to stand with each other. And then, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting how it affected the Jewish culture uh, from Eastern Europe down to, down to the state of Israel today. The German Jews and the Hungarian Jews did it differently. They uh, were very much into separateness, which is where Satmar comes in today, why they you know, don't recognize Israel and all the rest of it. It's very much part of their culture because they had ease. And the Russian Jews, as you see over here, never had any kind of an ease. In Russia, the next czars, Alexander III and Nicholas II, were worse than their predecessors, and that's pretty bad. They totally demonized the Jews, and they totally believed in the blood libel. So here the two guys had an education, not the education you would imagine. This is the funny part of Europe. You had people with huge power, and they weren't very educated. 
That's the problem you have in the world today. There are many countries in which you have uh, leaders with uh, violent countries, all the rest of it, and these guys never went to school. Right? I mean, you know, you look around the world, it, 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 is a, it is a dangerous dysfunction when there's a guy without education and pretty primitive and crude, and he commands a bunch of scientists. Right? I'll just get uh, off the top of my head, I'll say Saddam Hussein, right? He, he didn't have any education, but he had all the technicians under him that he terrorizes. You see? And so, of course, he's going to bring primitive notions to the political stage. The world has not solved this one. Not in the 20th century. Okay? This, is, this is our major political infrastructure problem everywhere. That the political leadership doesn't match the scientific knowledge of the scientific uh, te- technocracy. So that's happened in Russia. You have these guys that are ruling all of Russia. They're very powerful, all the rest of it. They actually believe in the, in the matzahs, you know, that the people, the Jews murder and, and sort of thing, you know, for, for, for rituals. Uh, politics in the second half of the 19th century becomes toxic in Tsarist Russia because the regime will not conciliate anyone and insist on autocracy. This is what eventually brought them down. In, in politics, it's a basic rule in any politics, there are going to be certain interests out there and you have to find ways to conciliate everybody in one way or another. In Russia, the peasants didn't have land, the people didn't have democracy, the middle classes didn't have access to the power, all that, and the Tsar said, well, that's the way it's always going to be. The Jews are, live under uh, slave conditions. That's the way it's always going to be. Well, uh, what, what, what's the result? It's going to turn, the political system will turn violent. You get it? If there's nowhere to go to let it out in a normal way, if you're not going to scream like in a Knesset, it'll go violent. And that, of course, is, is, uh, is what happens. The Tsar Alexander III was very capable, and he could pull it off. He was a tough autocrat. But not his successor, Nicholas II, who was just a jerk. You see, he was dumb. You remember his wife and Rasputin and all that sort of thing. No, see, he was a fool. Now it's amazing that a guy like that be the Tsar of Russia, but that's what the hereditary system can sometimes do. So the middle ground in Russia weakens at the expense of the extreme left and the extreme right. You get it? Politics, the middle folds. The nice liberal type guys that we've been talking about before, who would like to turn Russia into an America or to an England, they lose ground. And instead, those who uh, dissatisfied with the system go for extreme violence. And those the other way want to be on the right wing extreme violence to suppress the left wingers. The extreme left is into socialism and violent revolution with assassination the favorite activity. Are we able to get this sort of thing here? There's a reenactment. There's there's Alexander II coming with his horse and wagon and they're going to blow him up. Right? Now it's it's, uh, almost uh, funny because that missed him. But then you'll see he got out of the carriage. When he got out of the carriage then then they threw the bomb at him. Okay? This is, this is typical, by the way, ever since 1870s. Happens all the time in Russia. There's the Tsar, Alexander II, and he's asking what happened, what happened. And he goes, no, he should have kept riding. You know, he should have kept going, but he didn't. And he said, who are you? He asked the assassin, well, you know, what's your name? And all the rest of it. And you'll see, he'll walk over to another guy, the guy will throw a bomb at him. That's Alexander II. And kablooey. Right? <laughs> And he, and, and he died from that. Now, uh, now I'm going to tell you something. What do I mean by that, that? From then on, governors, policemen, police chiefs, judges are being assassinated all the time. There was a principled system of, of assassination which had a whole philosophy behind it. So the reason I'm telling you all this is that is in this, in this uh, atmosphere, they're going to have new blood levels. Uh, there's an extreme left that you just saw, and therefore there's an extreme right which is in reaction to combat foreign socialism, which is unchristian and unRussian, very anti-Semitic, because they see the Jews as a basic part of the problem. 
Oh, really? Maybe part of the problem is you won't give the peasants any land. Maybe part of the problem is you won't open up the system. Maybe part of the problem is you have no elections at all, zero. No, it's the Jews. <laughs> you get it? You know, it's the problem. Me? I'm me, moi? You know what? It's never, never us. So, on the one hand, the anti-Semitism that from then on, 1880s and 90s and afterwards, expresses itself in what they used to call the cold pogroms, which means that the government issues all kind of gazeras. The Jews are expelled from Moscow, even in the middle of winter. The Jews are, are, are uh, driven out of certain villages that are no longer open to Jews. The Jews find that this business or that business is closed down to them. You want to really stick it to somebody, declare bars a government monopoly, which you hand out only to Russians, you see, and wipe out all the people who have a, a bar. You want to you, uh, try people that sell uh, cigarettes. Take that away and say the only people who can sell cigarettes are people that the government gives a franchise to. So you wipe out a whole bunch of people that make money saying. So there's the kind of things they called it the cold pogrom. But on the other hand, you also had regular pogroms for the first time ever. What people have to understand is Russia historically never had Jews until the late 1700s, early 1800s, and they never had pogroms because this is a country of law and order. You understand? Uh, that's the one good thing you had. There were no riots ever. Uh, some of you are, are Russian, so you know what I'm talking about. But, uh, uh, but uh, they, they have ten times the police force Baltimore has. Yeah, I, I, that's not an exaggeration. By the way, that's not a bad thing necessarily. right? But I do mean what I say. I'm not exaggerating. They have ten times. There are cops everywhere. Uh, my father grew up in, in Tsarist Russia, believe it or not. And he said in every street where he lived in Minsk was a guard, was a, was a constable. Right? Every street. And that way, it's a law and order. So the pogrom, as we call it, which is the outbreak, never happened until the government decided that it should happen. Do you get what I'm saying? So until the Tsar, after his assassination, then starts the uh, pogroms, as, as we call it over here. It's a sign of dysfunction. How do you strike a blow at the elders of Zion by making a pogrom and killing little children or, or women? The Black Hundreds arises. This is an organization that comes together of the extreme right-wingers, and they enjoy the patronage of the Tsar Nicholas II, which is a big mistake, because when you patronize lawlessness, you delegitimate yourself in the eyes of the center and the left. Okay? They, they, they lost any sense of legitimacy from the broad mass of the public except the extreme right-wingers. The black hundreds, these groups, they believe in the blood libel. They believe in the protocols. Of, they're the guys who made the protocols of the elder Zion. That's where it comes from, from Tsarist Russia in the early 20th century. They're the ones who invented that. Okay? Um, the Russian Orthodox Church instantly doesn't do this, but the Catholic Church, which is big in Poland, believes in the blood libels, and the Catholics act upon them. So, for example, there's little, there's little cases, there's small cases, as it were, um, which, uh, like there was a barber, I'll, I'll spare you the details, uh, who's accused over here of blondes in Vilna in 1900, and sure to bring it, you know the charge right here, a kid is missing, they blame it on the Jew, this and that and the other, and the Jews get the lawyer, and he gets him off, and then it's oh, because you had a Jew lawyer, you know, because you paid paid him off uh, to do so. You already start to see these sorts of things pushed by the by the uh, uh, black hundreds. But the big, big case, and the last one that we're going to deal with today, which is a big case, is of course in 1913, just before the First World. That's late in history, and that's the Bayless trial. Okay, that's the Bayless trial, where um, in March 1911, a boy disappears on the way to school. Eight days later, his mutilated corpse is found, and immediately the reactionary police start looking for a scapegoat rather than the actual murderers. Okay? Uh, there's a sign they put out, boy murdered by Jews. <laughs> Killed him for Passover. Okay? They didn't know. But by the way, this is Ukraine, which, as you know, is always toxic even today. 
and uh, spread this all over to Ukraine. What are you, you know, what is your reaction going to be? Suppose you're a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, 15-year-old kid, let alone an adult. You, you, you grow up with this the rest of your life. So, oh, I remember they murdered that boy in Pesach. This is 1911 I'm talking about. Um, okay. It's a fascinating story, and they just published a book on it, by the way. You see in the library, I think it's called A Child of Christian Blood. Somebody very recently, like this year, published a new book on it. And uh, there was a professional, this is a movie. There was, there, was, there was a guy in the force who was just a policeman policeman. He wasn't into this politics stuff. He, you know, if you're a professional, you can't help but be professional. And so if there's a murder, there's something in you sometimes that's like this. I got to do the police work and follow the you know, leads where they go. His name was Krasovsky. Uh, that's him. He wasn't Jewish. Uh, and he knows that, uh, uh, that no scapegoat did and no Jews. Uh, and he hunts for the real killers. He gets no help from the police department. He has to do this with a friend. It's really a, a miniseries. And his superiors are discouraging him. And he finds the murderers. Meaning, through his own police work, he finds out the guys that did it. This lady was in coats with these other guys and the whole gang and whatever. But the government is angry at him and he gets fired from the police force. And on the other hand, they're aware of his findings and so they're not sure what to do with this hot potato. You know, because the guy didn't seem to do it, but they really want to feel that a Jew did it. They get this guy, Mendel Bayless, who was a superintendent at Brick Factory, and they say that he killed the kid. Um, they're not sure where to go, but in September, the Prime Minister of Russia is assassinated. Stolipin, very famous uh, person. Uh, let's go to the next one. He was the Tsar's right-hand man, and for the Black Hundreds, the Jews killed him. Now, the guy who killed him shot him in a, in a movie, the- in, a, in a theater, uh, openly, because that's the era of assassination. And uh, the guy that was the son of a Meshumid. In other words, he's Christian, and his father converted to Christianity. Not to the black country, he's a Jew. You get it? He's a Jew. And so they go crazy, and they say, we're going we're, we're to make somebody pay for the murder of this kid. And so they want to make a pogrom right then and there, but the Tsar is going to visit Kiev, and he doesn't want for political, for public relations reasons that it should be marred. And so the city is, doesn't go into a pogrom, but it's a tinderbox waiting for somebody to get the Jews. Let's prosecute this Jew, Bayless. See, so he's what you call the wrong guy, the wrong place, the wrong time. Um, but it's not so easy to fabricate a case. Because I just told you, the guy who did the real investigation found out the guys that did it. So if you're really going to fabricate, obviously you're going to have to make up a case. So we are talking about a high level of criminality in the, in, in the law enforcement division. And it's not coming from the cops, I just told you. The regular cops just have a natural tendency, you want to do your, your police business. It's coming from the higher-ups. Okay? And uh, it takes the government two years to fabricate a case. During these two years, from, from 1911-1913, so this guy Bayless was in jail, holding out till the government decides what to do with him, for 1911-1912-1913 till September. And uh, during this time, the press, the right-wing press, heats it up, baby. It's a, it's a steady drum roll. Of the Jew killed him, the Jew did this, and by the way, the Jews killed her matzah, and incidentally, the Jews do this, and you know, whatever about it. Imagine Pesach, matzah, Mara, Purim, Hanukkah, you know, they go through the whole uh, rigmarole. And I'll tell you again, we can smile or laugh at it. The, the, the people who read the newspaper, I mean, you know, <laughs> person like this, I read it in the, in the Baltimore Sun, right? I read it in the thing, it's got to be true. And uh, that's how it goes. On the other hand, the pro Bayless forces, the good guys, they also have two years. And this things the Jews 
Because now in 1913, we're putting up with this junk. They're still, they're still, the regime is, is, is resorting to these kind of charges because they're going to say he killed him for, for, for religious purposes. This is, this is what we're doing over here. And the pro-Bayless guys, the Russian liberals, they turned this into the Russian Dreyfus case. It's a clear case of criminality on the part of the lawmakers, of the police and the government, and it's a crime, and they're trying to bring out a miscarriage of justice, and the greatest Russian liberal figures rally to condemn the blood libel charges. They all say like this, here's Dreyfus and, here's, and where's the Emil Zola? I am the Emil Zola. Right? Emil Zola was a famous French person, not Jewish, who stepped forward and said like this, Dreyfus is innocent. I don't like Jews, but Dreyfus is innocent. That's the only thing that counts. And you can try to suppress me, but truth is on the march and nothing can stop it. That became the slogan of the Russian liberals in 1913. They said the czars, the ministers, the, the, the police uh, commissioners, they were doing, truth is on the march and nothing can stop it. You see? And uh, as a result, Bayless, who's just a schnook, right? Because that's the point of these whole stories. He was just pig. He was just a Jew, you know? Happened to be superintendent of a brick factory. Um, he gets a first-rate legal team. Because this rich banker, Jewish banker, Zach, in St. Petersburg, he said, I guess, he said, enough. Then we have Jews that no honor whatsoever. And so Zach is not religious, and this guy's a that, and that guy's a simulation of that. But they come together, as I told you before, and he said like this, money's no object, get the best uh, you know, legal thing like this, and we're going to give these guys a, a, a run for their money. And um, the, lead, the head of the team was the foremost Jewish lawyer in Russia, uh, Oscar uh, Grusenberg, who cannot practice in a court. He can only practice in an appeals court. That's the funny system. In Russia and in many European systems, they have something called the court of cassation. And what that means is you have the trial, and then if you can find a defect in the law, then you take it to a certain appeals court, like an American appeals court. So his technical guy, see, he was brilliant. He was a high-paid lawyer. And uh, I remember my father, he, he, in his time, the, the judge basically knew he's so smart. The judge said, yes, what do you say? You know, is he guilty? And he said, yes, let him go. I mean, that's what a super uh, lawyer he was. And he takes the case, and he said, I guess, we are not afraid to defend this guy. We're not afraid to defend the Jewish religion. And the Black Hundreds threatened his life. And he said, you can say what you want. The Jewish people, the Jewish religion is in an old anvil upon which many hammers have shattered, and the hammers are broken, and the anvil is still there. So take, you know, take your best shot. That's what he tells them. He comes out swinging, and the Russian Orthodox Church doesn't want to get involved. It's very interesting. Now, maybe they were trained by Chalosa, I don't know. Um, and so the prosecution can't get a Russian Orthodox priest to be the expert witness. So what do you do? So they look around, they look around the cops, and the, fortunately, they were like the Keystone cops. They couldn't get their act together. They, weren't, they, weren't very, they, were, just, they were evil, but they weren't capable, thank God. And so they get a uh, Catholic priest, uh, a Lithuanian Catholic priest named Pranitis, famous name, as the expert witness on the Jewish religion. He's going to testify how the Talmud and the other thing says that you should use matzahs and blood and all the rest of it. He is and, and right. The jury is picked by the prosecution. So there's a bunch of peasants, as you can see over there, and they figure like this. These are good Russians. They're not educated. They'll believe anything. And they'll do, and, you know, and, and the judge and the, and the prosecutor, like in these classic cases, says, I know you will do your duty. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? You'll do your duty. So will the system hold? And Grusenberg calls as his witness, the famous chief rabbi of Moscow, Rabbi Yaakov Mazer, who was a Ravmi Tam. He was, a, he was appointed by the government, but he was the most popular of those guys in Russia. He has four very brilliant volumes of memoirs. And he was a Yiddish, a Jewish Jew, and uh, you know, before he, when it was announced his case, the short cover rabbi called him, because he was in Marion Bar, and he said, I guess, don't say the Hasidim did it. You might be tempted to say 
you know, we don't do it, but the others do it. Well, I told you the other day, Toaf, the Italian guy says, it wasn't us, it was the other Jews. He said, don't do that. And Mazda said to him, very famous, he says, I know not to do that because we're told in the Bible when Yaakov came back for the little, the, the, the little jar, as the Talmud says, when he, when he put his family over the thing and he came back and he wrestled with the angel, he wrestled with the Sar Shalesov, with the forces of evil, and says he came back to get little jars. What was he, a cheapskate? You know? He said, no, the meaning of that uh, parable is that you don't yield anything to evil. Right? You don't say, I didn't do it, but my cousin did, or the other one did it. You fight the Sar of Esau full, 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 full bore. And uh, he gave a whole long uh, defense of Judaism and of Hasidism, by the way. I saw today, I couldn't believe it, at Chabad.org or somewhere like that. They actually have his speech because he praises Lubavitch in there, you know. His mother was a Lubavitcher. His father wasn't. And um, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a very uh, complex kind of uh, uh, thing. And he said like this, he says, put me up against this um, so-called expert Who's going to testify? But put me, put me. I wanted the chance to cross-examine him, and look what he says. He says this: "Oh, you're the expert. What is the meaning of the word chulin? I don't know. What is the meaning of the word ervin? I don't know. What is the meaning of yavamas? I don't know. These are famous uh, uh, books in the Talmud. And when did Baba Basra live? Because in Russian, Baba is a, is a grandmother, right? So where where Baba? So, and the guy said it's not even true. He didn't say I don't know. He said like this: He says I don't. I know every Jewish grandmother. I'm supposed to know when she lived or something like that." And then, of course, he's like this. The jury will note that these are three books, you know, right? And so forth. And this guy doesn't know anything, which collapsed the so-called expert witness over here. This is the best that the police could come up with. It turned out, unfortunately for the cops, Bayless had an alibi. The kid was murdered on a Saturday morning, and Bayless was not in shul. He went to work. And so he had, the, you know, uh, slips and things, you know, from check-in that he, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, then the police are like this. He took a five-minute break and went and killed the kid, and they went back to work. Eh, you know, it's, it turns out pretty bad. On the question of blood libel, Grusenberg assembles a bunch of Christian professors, I repeat, Christian professors, okay? And Russian Orthodox priests, no less. Not Jews, not, not converts. Russian Russians. And they testify in court, these are liberal. This is, this is a golden era of Russian liberalism. And they say like this, blood is prohibited by the Jewish religion. We don't, we don't say the Jewish religion is true, but this is not true. Okay? This case is just not true. You see? And, by the way, murder is also, <laughs> because the judge asked him, he says, uh, blood is prepared by the Jewish, what about killing? He said, no, murder is also prepared by the Jewish religion. And the fact that you have eminent members of the Russian Orthodox Church say so, makes a big impression on the peasants and the jury. You see? And so, it was quite a scene back and forth over there. Maza gives a long speech, which he quotes from every safer that ever prohibited blood and killing all the rest of it, uh, he was the uh, what do you call it? He was in connection. He was uh, uh, what shall I say? In, in in correspondence over the two years with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that's the Rishab up there, and with his son. And the, and and this, of course, in the bottom is the fa- father of the last Lubavitcher Rebbe. You know, Levi Yitzchak, and uh, they find every safer that has anything with blood and the Isra of blood and all the rest of it, and they sent him. So he came to court well armed. You see? Because Lubavitch was terrified that they'll say like this, Chabad did it. You see? Uh, regular Jews don't do it, but the Lubavitchers do it. And Mazda told me, so he says, well, my mother was Lubavitcher, you don't have to worry about me, but give me material. See? So it was quite a scene 
and quite a case that went on in those two months, which is Rosh Hashanah time, September and October, in the year 1913, which was not that long ago. It's a, almost a, it's a little more than a century. Now it's 2014. Um, then there was the famous case where, where, where they'll bring in an expert on Jewish occult practices. The child was stabbed 13 times. 13 is the bar mitzvah. 13 means this. 13, I think, is tov. You bring all kinds of things. It's all part of a ritual. The only thing is, then Gruza brings like this. I want to have a Forsenix person. It's 14 <laughs> stabs. <laughs> well, you know, give or take one. <laughs> it's, it, it, it was quite a while. And I want you to understand, all this time, the police are aware that the real killers are going free. So this stunk to high heaven. When the verdict came in, the, the jury deliberated four hours, not guilty. The czar was shocked. You understand? They took the system held. You know, people can't help it. When you're on the jury, you'd like to be prejudiced and all the rest. And they said, you know, it could be that it was killed by a ritual murder, but there's, I, we cannot return an indictment of guilty based on what you told us. So they took their, there's a, there's a golden moment of Russian liberalism. You understand? That, you know, they, they took it seriously and all the rest of it. And uh, it has, oh my goodness, the, uh, the humiliated czarist regime doesn't see it that way. And uh, they, they immediately, instead of you know, taking a good grace, they did sour grapes. And they instituted a whole bunch of cases. I'll just read you three sentences. It says, exasperated by the failure, the government wreaked its vengeance on the liberal-minded intellectuals and newspaper men who, by their agitation against the hideous libel, had wrested the prey from the hands of the black hundreds. Scores of legal actions were instituted, not only against newspaper editors and contributors, but also against the St. Petersburg Bar Association, which had adopted a resolution protesting against the method pursued by the government in the Bayless trial. The sensational case against the Metropolitan Lawyers was tried in June of 1914, one month before World War I broke out and terminated in a guilty verdict in other words, instead of saying we screwed up, they said, I guess, let's go and get all the guys that criticized us and send them all to Siberia or worse, except uh, Nebuch, the First World War broke out and, and, and they had to turn their, their eyes to something else. The Tsar of Russia said that as soon as this war is over, we're going to retry the case or get that son of a gun. We have memory the way he says this. He said, I have to wait for it. But guess what happened? Uh, World War I came in, the war never ended. He was overthrown. And then shot in the basement with his whole family, okay, and uh, and, and yeah, by, by Lenin's guys. And when the communists took over, which was uh, right after that, this was such a famous cause celebre on the left that when Lenin comes to power, he rounded up all the guilty guys and shot them. In other words, the real killers, the the girl who testified falsely, the prosecutor, the whole you know, the communists don't fool around. So they they, they shot everybody over here. Bayless wasn't as stupid. As soon as the trial was over, he won. He said, I'm, I'm moving to America. You know, because he died on the on uh, Delancey Street or something like that in Brooklyn, but that's the way to go. You know, you don't, you don't stay behind because the black hundreds will get you. See, first he went to Israel for a short while, then he ended up staying in, he died in 1934 in, 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 in New York. He was a schnook who occupied a, a brilliant moment in Jewish history, you know, through, through force of circumstances. He didn't do anything, but he became a symbol you see, of what happened over here. But uh, the rightists uh, regard the whole Bayless case, O.J. Simpson. Right? They say, he got a good lawyer, right? He, he got all, but we all know he did it. And they still believe that in Russia today. Got you, I want you to understand. 
If you ask the Russians, oh, the Bailiffs, I know, miscarriage of justice. The Jews use their influence and the Jews use their power. And so you can't ever get a closure the way you'd like to, even though it was a jury trial and the government gave his best shot and it was a Christian jury and all the rest of it, but that never is quite enough. Uh, so I conclude by pointing out the last, literally the last thing that the czarist regime did before they went down in a rain of bullets was try to go after a blood libel case against, against some poor schnook of a Jew. That gives you an idea of how stupid they were, right? And how it was, they, they were willing to, to turn their attention away from important matters to vote to Narishkeit. Well, that's my point of view, you see? They obviously don't see it that way, and it shows you how deeply rooted these feelings are, um, and you won't be surprised if they survive among us today. So this is, like I said before, why we, we, we need defenders of the Jews, we need our own country, we need everything, and you need Siyat HaShemayim, big time, and uh, in, order, in order for us uh, to survive, to be continued. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.